the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hackstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am your Headmaster and host, Rebecca Hackstrom, and it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280 The Patriot. And, of course, I'm joined in studio once again by our producer and my co-host, Mark Durkin. Nice to see you, Rebecca. How are you? I am very good. We are quickly approaching Christmas here. Only another, what, 10 days? I know. It's really close by. Yes, it is. Very exciting. Well, we are going to continue a conversation that we started last week, and we're looking forward to that. And it ties in to uh, our nation's um, emphasis now on... um, Kind of picking winners and losers and rewriting history. Absolutely. Yes. So for much of our nation's existence, public schools incorporated a key goal of the First Amendment to create an informed citizenry capable of self-government and political debate. And according to a 1967 Supreme Court case, Cayesian versus the Board of Education, the classroom is peculiar peculiarly, sorry about that, (laughs) the marketplace of ideas. The nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to that robust exchange of ideas which discovers truth out of a multitude of tongues rather than through any kind of authoritative selection. Authoritative selection being the key phrase there. In fact, today, one doesn't have to look far to see that there is a violent attack against the free exchange of ideas from the college campus where conservative speakers we see all the time are being kicked off campus before they can even enter it, all the way into the public square where across the country commemorative statues and symbols of American historical events and figures are being torn to the ground. Of course, what comes to mind is Charlottesville, Virginia, just a couple of years ago. There was a big controversy surrounding that. Mm -hmm. So what gives? Well, 2019 Mm -hmm. marks the 70th anniversary of George Orwell's novel 1984, in which the main character works for the Ministry of Truth in a, quote-unquote, in a one-party socialist state. Now, the Ministry of Truth does not promote truth, but instead it rewrites history to conform to party doctrine. Orwell, he prophetically understood how elites can manipulate history for propaganda purposes, Mm -hmm. of course, observing what was going on in Nazi Germany and in communist Soviet Union as well. Well, unfortunately, Minnesota is not immune to having the names of popular landmarks changed or the history surrounding these landmarks rewritten. In fact, our guest tonight tells us that there is an aggressive push to replace our traditional self-understanding as the land of freedom and opportunity with a vision of America as an illegitimate nation that advanced by trampling on victims' groups. That's right. And joining us in studio to shed light on this is Catherine Kirsten. 
Catherine is a writer and an attorney. She is a senior policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment. She was a founding director of the center and served as its chair from 1996 to 98. And Catherine has written on cultural and policy issues for a variety of publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, Christianity Today, Policy Review, First Things, and the Star Tribune. For two years, she served as a regular commentator for National Public Radio's All Things Considered. She earned a BA from Notre Dame, a master's from Yale, and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Minnesota Law School. Catherine has been a regular guest on Education Nation, and we are so honored to welcome her back on again tonight. Catherine, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, last week, we discussed the name changes that have taken place at Lake Calhoun and several surrounding streets, and we even kind of learned about the problems that that's causing, Um, even things as practical as getting your groceries delivered. Exactly. Um, But tonight, let's turn our focus to Minnesota's most valuable historical asset, which is Fort Snelling. When it was built, and what were the what were the intended missions that were carried out there from this location? Well, it was built initially uh, after the War of eighteen twelve to uh, keep the British, who were still uh, menacing American frontiers from Canada, uh, out of our new lands, the new lands of the Louisiana Purchase. And there was particular focus on regulating the fur trade trade, and uh, attempting to keep peace uh, between the, the Indian tribes that often fought together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And that obviously was an important mission. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and was very um, genuine and important, and, um, and now we are not really going to be hearing about that important mission that it actually mm-hmm. served, are we? No, we're not. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we had spoken about this a little bit last week, Catherine, but you know, just for our listeners that uh, may not have heard last week, you had written that after its creation, Fort Snelling had Indian agents at the fort that regularly supplied the Dakota Indians. Describe the type of relationship that mm-hmm. the Indian agents had with the Indian tribe, the Dakotas, and how the U.S. government served as a peacemaker for the feuding Dakota tribe. Well, the, um, the the first Indian agent was particularly good, Lawrence Taliaferro, who uh, was close to the Dakota, uh, I believe had a Dakota wife, and uh, supplied them with many of the things that they needed uh, to enhance survival, like, like uh, metal optics. Of course, the Dakota Indians did not have the uh, ability to work with metal and so uh, he supplied them with guns and knives and other hunting, uh, hunting implements, traps and axes and that kind of thing. And, and also uh, often gave them food and tobacco. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the peace councils, uh, there were uh, more than 200 U.S. sponsored peace councils between 1820 and 31 uh, between the uh, Dakota and Ojibwe tribes mm-hmm. who were a long time enemies. That's Which a, a lot of peace councils in 11 years. Yes, it really is. And, and again, pointing back to the good that was happening right. uh, that's now being glossed over. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward to 1862, and Minnesota experiences what you've described as a tragic episode in the state's history. You wrote yeah. that the historical events pertaining to the Dakota War and its aftermath have been rewritten, reaching egregious proportions. Before we discuss the blatant misrepresentations, what emergencies were the Dakota Indians facing in the summer of 1862, 
And how did they respond to those emergencies? Well, the Indians, of course, always had a, a difficult time surviving on the prairies in our climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1862, uh, they were running short of food as their uh, as the animals they hunted uh, decreased in population. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the land payments from the federal government were late, and there were uh, tensions between the Dakota and the traders. And the uh, Indian agent at that time, his name was uh, Thomas Galbraith. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you know, going going back then and, and just kind of talking about the blatant represent, misrepresentation, maybe we can jump ahead to that then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, um, the response of the Dakota um, to the pressures that were starting to build left Minnesotans outraged by the cruel and the barbaric actions that left many people slain. Mm-hmm. Um, there were cries for revenge. So maybe if we could talk a little bit about uh, some of the actions that came that left Minnesotans outraged. And how did the U.S. government then respond right. after capturing some of the Dakota perpetrators? Right. So th- there was the uh, it was a group of Dakota warriors who decided to wage war against the white settlers and uh, what resulted was a massacre. In fact, it was the, the largest toll in a, in a white Indian uh, conflict in the history of the United States. There were mm, yeah. uh, more than 600 southwest Minnesota settlers, uh, many of them around New Ulm, who were killed. Mm. Uh, and eventually the toll reached 650 uh, mm. for those who died after most of them. Were, were women and children who had no way to defend themselves. And if you look at the number of whites who were killed at that time, right. and you, if, if it occurred today and the same proportion of Minnesota's population was killed, uh, it would be 15,000 dead. Wow. And that is five times the death toll of uh, 9-11. Mm-hmm. It was a huge huge death toll for the time. And it's particularly uh, tragic that almost 100 of these victims were children aged 10 or under, and 40 of these were babies of two oh, or under. Oh. And there were 20,000, I mean, think of it, there were 20,000 refugees in that small population who had to leave their homes, and hundreds of, of children were orphaned. Unbelievable. So of, yeah, how the U.S. Uh, government and the state uh, 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 armed forces um, responded. Uh, well, I guess first, I, I want to get all these questions answered. You yeah. talked about <laughs> the brutal, the brutal way that many of these uh, people were were killed. Right. And I this think was it's important. about 140 right. miles. This is the kind of thing that is just simply not talked about, but is well documented. Yeah. Um, it, in some cases, babies were nailed to trees by the Dakota oh. warriors and left to die there. There, there are actually. Um, uh, graphic uh, <sighs> pictures of this. I mean, there are there are you know drawings of this. Mm-hmm. There are children uh, whose whose limbs were were chopped off with tomahawks right in front of their parents, and <sighs> some of the victims had all their internal organs ripped out and scattered across the ground. And, oh my And one one um, eyewitness said bodies were mangled, quote, to such a degree as to be almost deprived of human form. And mm. that included a woman whose head was left on a table with a knife and a fork mm. stuck in it. So you can imagine um, there, there were just desperate cries for revenge from the, yes. from, uh, the survivors of these murdered 
victims. And the U.S. government uh, went after the perpetrators, uh, but then they moved to protect the Dakota women and children who, who were, you know, just uh, as, the, as the winter came on or the, the weather got colder, they were defenseless. And so the Army built a camp over by Fort Snelling to housed during the winter uh, more than 1,600 uh, largely Dakota dependents. And they, their intention was to shield these Indian uh, yes. dependents mm-hmm. from, from furious, revenge-minded whites mm-hmm. who, who wanted to kill all of them. And mm-hmm. secondly, to, to feed these Indians so that they would survive wow. through the winter. Mm-hmm. Talk about the complete opposite of the narrative yes. that's really being presented yeah, the, the narrative being presented is that this was a con- was a concentration camp, and that the U.S. government had uh, genocidal policies uh, across the nation toward indigenous people, and this, uh, we're told, is is such a genocidal policy. Mm. And once again, when we aren't teaching history um, using primary documents, you know, you you know the truth because you're going back and you're looking yeah. at primary documents. And and yet, how many schools are doing that? How many oh, journalists none. are doing that? You know, right. very none, few. Right. Yeah. And so then you can see how how the narrative and, and the history gets completely rewritten. Yeah. Well, in your article, Catherine, you point to the Minnesota Historical Society as the culprit in the rewriting of this mm-hmm. particular historical narrative anyway, as it pertains to the yep. Dakota War of 1862. How did the Minnesota Historical Society website portray the U.S. government housing and treatment of Dakota women and children after the war? Yes, and I alluded to that, um, to the fact that this um, holding camp where uh, the Indians who who lived there were uh, free to come and go. They were given uh, generally the same rations as the fort soldiers and and it's a good bet that many would have starved without this. They were given mm-hmm. medical care. Nevertheless, the, uh, the Minnesota Historical Society website portrays this army camp for, uh, for women and children as a concentration camp, mm-hmm. uh, which, as we well know, was up images of Auschwitz yes. and uh, similar Nazi camps. Mm-hmm. And they put it in the category, this larger category of genocidal policies mm-hmm. and the you know that the the fact that um the indian women and children uh moved to the camp they call that a forced march which is not accurate most of them went willingly mm-hmm. uh, because they wanted they, they wanted to survive uh yeah. the winter but mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of um a- attempting to um make the the, the white people involved here, um, villains, and yeah. the Indians portrayed as victims. That is very simplistic and not accurate. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine um, feeling comfortable rewriting, rewriting that kind of history. Uh, we know when you think of the evil that was perpetrated against these settlers and that the that the Native Americans were actually protected from retribution by the whites, and then that gets portrayed as evil. Um, Yes, and it's important to say that um, many of the Dakota people were not in favor of of going to war, and they were caught up in this Mm -hmm. uh, to to their detriment. But I think that the feeling was that these two two peoples cannot 
um, peacefully um, coexist uh, on the same, in, in near proximity to each other after such a horrific yeah. experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you are listening to Education Nation here on AM 1280 The Patriot. We are continuing our discussion for the second week in a row with Catherine Kirsten discussing her latest article from Think Minnesota, Change the Name, Rewrite History, Redefine Politics, as it pertains to several of the major landmarks here in the state of Minnesota. We are talking about Fort Snelling. And getting back to our discussion about Fort Snelling, we just talked about some of the history account of what took place in the Dakota War of 1862, how some of that was rewritten. Well, in 2017, Steve Elliott, who was then the Historical Society's executive director, ordered for signs changing the name from Historic Fort Snelling to Historic Fort Snelling at Bedote. So by law, Bedote, okay, yeah. yes. And by law, only the Minnesota legislature can change the fort's name. So how did the Minnesota State Senate respond to this? What was their charge against the Historical Society? And how did the Historical Society respond? Well, uh, they were uh, concerned about what they called revisionist history for the reasons that we discussed. And they threatened to withhold $4 million uh, from the Historical Society's funding. Uh, and well, I, I should say first of all that the, the signs did go up. They changed uh, the, the name, uh, as you said, uh, to Historic Fort Snelling at Bedoti. And so the Senate uh, wanted the uh, the signs to be to come down. And it's my understanding that there was an agreement on the part of the Historical Society to to do that. Uh, they did not do it at that time. Uh, they claimed uh, at some points the signs were temporary or that they just weren't really renaming. They just added historical context, et cetera. But eventually they did acknowledge that they couldn't do this, and those signs are now covered, to my knowledge. And you, know, you can't see them the way you could see them before. And they have actually launched a, a public input process uh, to, to change the name by going to the legislature. I mean, to, to, to supposedly see if the public wants to do this, right. or at least they'll take under the count as they make their decision on what to recommend. Right. Now, Interesting. Think, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was just, just going <laughs> to say the name change aspect, though, wasn't that, in a sense, being put forth as to be included, like in some sort of larger revitalization project? Like that yeah. was just one of the yes, components? Yes. Oh, so it was even kind of yes. being snuck in there. Yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting. What yeah, I'm, yeah, there's a. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say what I, one of the things I find interesting is that just a little bit of pushback um, is causing causing them to t- to rethink this. Whereas I look at the Lake Calhoun situation, and that was done in a different manner, and there was no pushback at all, and that all just happened with no discussion and and no second guessing. Right. So it, yeah, it, yeah, it does show yeah. that if you do get involved. I mean, the, you know, I, 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 we, we want people on our show to um, listen and learn and get involved mm-hmm. in the political process and what's happening in their 
uh, neighborhoods and in our state and in our nation. And uh, it just shows you that maybe even contacting your legislature about things like this. Um, oh, there's no question of that. You, know, you are absolutely, absolutely yeah. right on that. People, if this actually comes to fruition, that they do go to the legislature asking for uh, an official name change, that would be very important mm-hmm. for people to make their make their opinions known. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm just saying even the fact that they pushed back the legislature pushed back yes. or the Senate pushed back beforehand, you know, they it, it slowed it down is what I'm saying. And it's putting it into yep. more of a public process, which is where it belongs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. Well, I'm we're going to yeah, we're going to turn our attention <laughs> here for the last eight minutes on the last landmark. Yeah. And this includes the University of Minnesota. And in 2017, faculty at the University of Minnesota had staged an exhibit which alleged that four campus administrators from the 1930s and 40s had engaged in anti-Semitism, enforced racial segregation in dormitories, or had taken other, quote-unquote, problematic positions. So take our listeners, if you would, through this case, and did the university end up removing the names of the administrators from prominent campus buildings? No, which is uh, kind of Rebecca's point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Yes, um, yes. No, no, uh, it was a 2017 exhibit called The Campus Divided at the U of M that was put together by some faculty members and made charges against four uh, former administrators like Lotus Kaufman, of course, Kaufman Union yeah. named after him, people, as you say, Mark, of, of real distinction, uh, and buildings named yeah. after them at the U of M. And um, there was a 125-page uh, report that a faculty group did after Eric Kaler, who was then the U's president, appointed a, a faculty task force to recommend whether the names of those buildings uh, should, in fact, be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a, a fairly lengthy process, uh, a kind of uh, hearing, let's say, at a at a regents meeting uh, described by the Daily and this Daily as a raucous affair. Hmm. And you can just imagine yes. what that was <laughs> like with students and some activist mm-hmm. faculty. Um, but but the faculty the the, uh, the regents pushed back, and they actually <laughs> did something that's rarely done. Mm-hmm. They they voted before voting ten to one against this. They actually started to look at the documents that the task force had claimed supported these charges of anti-Semitism and racism. And uh, Professor uh, Ian Maitland at the Carlson School uh, did some of this work, and he actually concluded that that, that the documents that that the the faculty report was pointing to in many cases uh, really uh, tended toward the opposite conclusion. Wow. And uh, when the the regents looked at this, uh, one of them said, quote, the the faculty uh, in in preparing their task force, quote, were not doing this as an exercise in looking for the truth. They presumed these people were guilty. Mm -hmm. So the regents did not vote to rename the buildings. And uh, now uh, this process has been renewed, but there is an attempt to create a process for looking at buildings' names, uh, which didn't really exist at the U of M before this. And I think some of the regents are advocating a pretty sensible approach here. Uh, so there's a new president, Joan Gable, mm-hmm. and uh, whatever will happen under her watch, uh, we'll have to 
we'll have to look at closely. Right, yeah. right. That's 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 very good. Well, how do the name changers, these people who generally portray, you know, uh, are the the people who are promoting changing the names of some of these um, important places and sculptures mm-hmm. and what have you? How do they portray America's founding principles? Well, you know, as we generally. as we know, say changing the name of Lake Calhoun mm-hmm. uh, is, is not going to help the, uh, the Dakota people or uh, Native Americans today. Uh, it is, it is the, the process generally, in my view, is really about the name changers themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are stages for drama, right, these yeah. campaigns. And they, yeah. they provide chances for, for these self-righteous, often, in my view, yeah. uh, self-dramatizing elite to, to pose, to preen, really, as the vanguard of progress and social mm-hmm. justice. So mm-hmm. much more caring, so much more knowledgeable than all the rest of us. Mm-hmm. That's so well put. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as the left's campaign to rewrite history expands, what will the contemporary version of Orwell's newspeak look like? And what will the end game look like, do you feel? Well, I, I think this is just incredibly important. Mark, uh, the, the left campaign to rewrite history really threatens to create an intellectual vacuum. And what they're trying to do, I think, is to create shame and guilt on the part of Americans, and in particular white Americans, you know, people who, who are just afraid to, to, to weigh in or to ask to be taken seriously because of the you know, profound guilt they're supposed to bear because of what people did you know, 150 years ago. So I think the, the aim is to fill this, this vacuum with, as you say, a, a new version of Orwell's Newspeak. And Orwell invented this term of Newspeak, and it's a language designed not to allow us to articulate the truth uh, in an actual, you know, accurate way, but to make it more difficult to think independently at all. And so the Newspeak of today uh, is words like diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, these words do not mean when they're used by the left. They do not mean what common sense suggests. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mean conformity and inequity and persecution of those who disagree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, but but you know, the, the left includes a lot of what Thomas Sowell has called verbal virtuosos. People who are very, very skilled at manipulating language and framing the debate by doing that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the end game, uh, Orwell talked about that, and he said it was the erasing of truth and, as I said, prevention of independent thought. And uh, his his very pithy quote about um, the importance of preserving history so that records aren't destroyed and falsified books aren't rewritten, which is what basically happens in 1984, is he said, who controls the past, who controls the future, who controls the present, controls the past. Mm -hmm. So if we give our uh, left-wing elites the power to start by chipping away at factual history right. and imposing new speak in the name of fairness, we are courting uh, a very dangerous end game with mm. anti-democratic uh, results. Mm-hmm. I think Abraham Lincoln, uh, our former president, uh, had a good 
understanding of this as well, too, uh, during his presidency when he said that the philosophy of the school classroom in one generation will be the philosophy oh. of the government in the mm-hmm. next. One of my favorite quotes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely correct. So important. And we can't be so busy with our lives that we don't pay attention to these What's things. Going on, and, you know, exactly. I think it almost just becomes a din when you turn on the nightly news and, and these true, these things true. are happening all over the nation and, right. and even all over the world to a degree. I mean, how, and, how powerful are words, though? I mean, when you think about words and what they have traditionally met and then when the definition and meaning of those words has changed, you're really on yeah. a slippery slope. Right, right. So we need people yes, exactly. waking up and paying attention. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for enlightening us these last two weeks. We are so happy to have you on the show. And Mark, thank you again. Always a pleasure. And if you'd like to listen to this podcast or any other podcast, please go to adnationmn.org, adnationmn.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Education Nation Radio. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.